Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 19, Tragedies and Payoffs. Oh, hello there. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone who wrote in comments and wrote me emails and just said the nicest things. I got some good, good feedback from lots of people. And um, Lime and Violet, I await your promo. Um, I am podcasting today from under a blanket again. This time it's an adorable little see I can't see it very well a froggy and lizard blanket that belongs to my two and a half year old (laughs) hey it's something and at least it keeps the sound quality from echoing which is really annoying it's also not 4,000 degrees where I'm sitting this week so it's all good so I I have the um the title this week of tragedies and payoffs and I'm going to deal with the tragedy first First off, the podcast is a little late because I um, I broke my finger, and I did it in the most unglamorous way. Of course, is there any glamorous way to break your finger? Well, actually, yeah, I suppose there could be. Um, I didn't do it that way. I gave myself a hairline fracture in April by slamming a door when my sons were tap dancing on my last nerve. I just walked away and slammed a door and broke my finger which I think is called instant karma. <laughs> so yeah, I paid for that. And you know, it didn't hurt until, or un- unless my two or six-year-old, um, either one of my two sons grabbed my hand and twisted. That was the only time it really was a problem. And it, it was clearly healing slowly, but fine. Well, we came to Tucson and my mom's house has the really beautiful Mexican tile that is also very slippery. And she has a number of rugs that don't have um, the non-slip grip rubber sheets underneath them. And in the middle of the night, on the second night we were here, in a strange house, admittedly, my little two-year-old somehow got around the guardrail and fell out of bed. And what a wail he put up. And I jumped out of bed, and I raced to go rescue my son. And in the process, I fell, and I landed on that finger. Now, I'm, I am known for having a very low tolerance for pain. Everything hurts. So I kind of, you know, just swallowed the pain and thought, well, it's just a sprain and I'll get better and everything will be fine. But instead of my sprain getting better, it actually got worse. And so finally yesterday, after spending two full days trying to see an orthopedist who did hands, I went to the urgent care facility here in, in Tucson at the University Medical Center which is very nice. And I got there right when they opened and I got seen very quickly. And the doctor, I don't want to say he blew me off, but he blew me off and said, yeah, it's just a strain, babe. You know, go home, put some ice on it, take some ibuprofen. Well, painkillers don't work on me. I'm one of those special people for whom uh, pain medication just doesn't work at, at all. People have given me locals. It doesn't work orally by a needle, the only thing you can do is knock me out. So, which thank God does work. Um, So he he pretty much just dismissed me and sent me on my way and said, you know, you can buddy tape it to the other finger if you want, but otherwise you're just going to 
you're going to get better in three weeks. And I said, well, it's already been three weeks. And he said, yeah, well, it'll just take a couple more weeks. So I went, okay, fine, whatever. Buddy taping did feel better, so fine. So I left and I went and did some grocery shopping for mom. And as I was in the checkout line, embarrassingly, because I, I feel so bad when my phone rings <laughs> when I'm out in public, I, I don't mind in the car. I don't mind when I'm walking just through the mall or where I can be quiet about it. But in the checkout line, it's really embarrassing. So I answer the phone and it's the hospital. And they said, we're putting the doctor through to you. And he came back on and he said, well, the radiologist who looked at your x-rays was the attending. And when we actually had the senior, I guess, radiologist look at your x-rays, he actually thinks a ligament detached and pulled a bone chip off with it. And that's why you're in pain. So can you come back and get a splint? <laughs> I didn't want to say I told you so, but I did feel kind of vindicated. And when I got to see the x-ray, it sure made sense because where the bone chip came off or the, where they think it came off is certainly where the pain is. So I am now in a splint, which means I can't type, which means yesterday I had to get voice recognition software for my computer so that I could actually do work. I tell you, nothing's ever easy. So that's the first tragedy. The second tragedy, and the far more significant tragedy, way more important than my finger, is I had planned on podcasting today and telling you about some um, people from whom I have bought fiber and yarn and spindles and all sorts of things called Simple Market Farms. These are people who I really like. I really like their whole philosophy of what they do and why they do it. And I've really liked their products. And everything was set to go. I had all sorts of links already pre fixed up for you guys for the blog and last night as I'm about to shut down the computer I get this email in my box saying hi simple market farms is closing its doors and I felt so horrible there's a there's a family emergency and they have to move in a hurry and take care of family and it's just you can tell it's one of those whirlwind things where they're just like okay well we're just getting rid of stuff so take what you can so I'm going to put the link to their sale page for them cleaning out what's left of their inventory. They also have a link to another store, which I hadn't heard of before, that they say is carrying everything that they carried plus. So if you're in the market, there's some, it looks like there's some good stuff there. But I just, I just felt so bad. It was, it was just a, just a sad moment there to see good people who've worked so hard kind of have to shutter the door and say, okay, we just have to circle the wagons for a little while and take care of each other. And I, I applaud them that that's what they chose to do. It's, um, it is a thing of beauty and wonder when families really pull together and make it work. But boy, I, it sounds like they have a long row in front of them to hoe, and I, I just wish them all the best. So there will be a link to their, their sale page, not their regular page, uh, in the show notes today. The... Um, the other tragedy is because there are so many this week. Wensleydale cheese. I don't know if you guys have seen Wallace and Gromit movies or watched the shorts, but there is a wonderful British cartoon, a claymation cartoon called Wallace and Gromit. And I will put links to all of this in the show notes. Wallace and Gromit, as a series of shorts, pretty much single-handedly sa saved the Wensleydale dairy in England, which has a fabulous history. I will also try and link to the history of the dairy. I don't want to get into it here because it'll take me an hour to explain it to you. 
Know that it's cool. Also know that the cheese is really, really good. And there's a reason why Wallace in Wallace and Gromit loves it. Well, my mom is showing Wallace and Gromit at work tomorrow to try and make some very unhappy people happy and give them a little break. And so they have a challenge. Everybody's supposed to bring a cheese dish. And I said to her, well, since you're you know, running this gig, you really should bring the Wensleydale. So I immediately got online to Wensleydale Dairy and I put my order through and I put the caveat, if you can't get the cheese here by Thursday, don't send two, just send one. They had been so fast in shipping in the past, I was really hopeful that the cheese would show up by today, Thursday, but it hasn't. And so I have my little Wensleydale tragedy too, that I I wasn't able to get the really cool cheese for my mom. I was able to find a small piece of Wensleydale with blueberries, but that's not what's in the movie. And I really, I really wanted to be a purist. So, so that was sad on the payoff side of things however i have been as you can probably tell from uh, my chatter since i've been here in tucson pretty much one-on-one with my two sons 24 7 for the last closing on a month and while i love my boys i also enjoy talking to adults too and there just hasn't been very much of that lately and i'm starting to feel it Last Saturday, however, I did manage to find a lovely, young, sweet, sweet 11-year-old babysitter who's certified in CPR and has passed all sorts of infant training classes, and she's she calls to confirm her babysitting appointments. She's just a dream child, and I'm, I'm hoping that by getting her when she's 11, it means that I can count on her for the next five years, at least, before she starts dating people and playing varsity soccer. So she came over and I was able to go to a spin-in, which made me so happy. The Tucson Hand Spinning Guild, and I'll put a link to their webpage as well, they are very active and really remarkable in the amount of things they do. They have taken field trips all over Arizona and New Mexico to um, Native Native, uh, Native American tribe lands, to... Um, Because, you know, the Navajos are here, which means Navajo weaving is here. They also have gone into New Mexico where there is an amazing cotton fiber store. I'm putting a link there. I have seen the products. I am buying some myself. I am deeply impressed. If you have any interest in spinning cotton, start with the stuff that they have at this place. It's For one thing, it's beautiful. The Chasing Rainbows woman is doing some of the dyeing for them. And, and two, it's just really high quality cotton. Pima cotton grows here in Pima County uh, in and around Tucson. So we, we have good cotton here. So the, I went to the Tucson Hand Spinners Guild Spin-In, which happens the third Saturday of every month at a place called Kiwi Knitting, which I'm also putting on the web. Lovely place, lovely people. I, I felt like I was at home. It was just so nice. And I don't have my wheel with me. It's, it's arriving here tomorrow. So I had my charka. And I did a little cotton and I did a little cotton silk blend. And, you know, I, I guess they're used to new spinners showing up who don't actually know what they're doing. And they said, well, why don't you introduce yourself? And so I did kind of. And one of the women said, well, she can long draw on a charka. I guess she knows what she's doing. <laughs> so I felt pretty good about that. That was kind of a, a nice special grown-up moment. One of the very, very few moments I've had in the last 27 days. 
the other payoff, though, and honestly, this is the payoff we've all been waiting for. Let's just be frank with each other for a moment. And if you can't be frank, be be Patrick. And if you can't be Patrick, you can be Heather with me. The, um, sorry, I just launched into a goofy joke. The payoff we've all been waiting for, of course, is Darcy and Elizabeth. Now, I'm not going to give anything away, but I am going to tell you, we get to see Lady Catherine de Bourgh again today, and she throws up a fairly sizable roadblock. This is the the last major time that you'll get to see her. And the, I think I have to use the word, confrontation between her and Elizabeth is quite something. And it's another one of those moments when you just cheer for Elizabeth. It's also another one of those moments where I am always surprised by Jane Austen. Because in many ways, she she does in many ways uphold the morals and values of her time. You know, women have a place and men have a place. Um, certainly the sexual politics behind what Lydia and Wickham did are um, not looked upon favorably and favorably. And it is, it seems in Jane Austen's world that they are certainly within their rights to punish Lydia and Wickham and for Mr. Bennett to say, you know, Lydia can't ever come in my house again. That, um, that Austen seems to be supporting that side of things. And of course, you know, on just a purely practical note, it wasn't a joke. If you messed around as a woman and you did it badly or without any knowledge, you're going to get pregnant. And an unmarried pregnant woman back then was, A, a serious burden to her family if they kept her around and didn't kick her out, but B, looking at a long and very difficult life of hard labor in many ways with probably very little opportunity for help. So you can kind of understand the practical side of really discouraging women from messing around. Certainly the men weren't discouraged much. Um, but then after you have that moment of kind of classic propriety on Jane Austen's part, you also get scenes like the scenes you get today with Elizabeth, which are just spectacular. Today is also another example of just how far off the mark Mr. Bennett can be. As much as I love the man and as much as he makes me laugh, he doesn't pay much attention to his girls. You can kind of understand why with uh, Mrs. Bennett for his wife, but you'd think he'd pay a little bit more attention to Elizabeth. And he, he just hasn't. So that's kind of an interesting thing. And the, the scene between Elizabeth and Darcy at the end of the readings today is, of course, the one we've all been waiting for. After today's podcast, we will finish up the last three chapters of the book, which are the classic denouement, where everything um, wraps up. Actually, denouement is French for um, unraveling or untying. And Unraveling kind of has a weird negative connotation. I think untying is really a more appropriate one, that all the knots that have been tied together during the course of the, the novel up through the climax finally get untied and everything gets put back at rest and at peace. And it allows you to end the book happily. So that's what's going to happen next week. After that, as I think I've told you before, I'm going to pick a couple of shorts for... Um, probably you know four weeks three or four weeks worth of shorts while I get my head around whatever book we're going to do next so far the front runners are War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells because wouldn't it be interesting to 
hear the book and then be able to compare it to the shh, Tom Cruise version of the movie that, that came out last year and the, um, the Orson Welles version as a, as a radio play. The second choice was Turn of the Screw by Henry James, which would also be an interesting and challenging choice and kind of keep with our, our classic uh, fiction side of things. I guess you could say War of the Worlds is classic science fiction. So they're both classics. Um, and the third choice that's been put forth is Tom Sawyer, which I, I think I want to hold off on Tom Sawyer because I want to try and figure out if slash how I could do Tom Sawyer followed by Huckleberry Finn because the politics of what happened to Twain between writing Tom Sawyer and then years later writing Huckleberry Finn, um, it's fascinating. I taught Huck Finn every year that I taught in New York City, and it always turned out to be not not always the favorite, but the one the kids talked about the most. Of course, the problem is the language, um, because Mark Twain is writing about uh, a lot of people who are racist, and there's just no other way to describe them. Um, he's writing in the South. He's writing after the war, but he's writing about the South before the war. Um, the treatment of Jim and the treatment of other African-Americans is appalling. The treatment of Jim by Huck and Huck by Jim is what makes the book fascinating. Because regardless of what language Huck has grown up using, and clearly he's learned it from his, I don't think there's any other way to put it, white trash, nasty, nasty, nasty father. Even though he uses the language he learned from that man, his heart is in a very, very different place. So Huck becomes um, a very complex and complicated character who, who is, in almost an Orwellian sense, turned around backwards because of his upbringing and the conflict his upbringing in a slave-owning state the conflict it has with his heart, which is in the right place. And I think it's one of the reasons why so many people have misunderstood what Twain was trying to do. In some ways, he's, he's actually too successful at the satire and makes it very difficult for the readers to tease apart Twain's voice, Huck's voice, and Twain's commentary on Huck's voice. So uh, the Tom Sawyer thing I'm, I'm intrigued by because I'd really like to do them both back to back. They're such different books but I'm not sure how the language would go over because it gets tiresome when you hear it out loud. You can kind of glaze over the words when you're reading it on your own, but it's, it's another thing entirely when you're, um, when you're listening to it. So, so those are our three choices so far. Months ago, someone wrote in and said the Oz books, or at least the first Oz book, was on LibriVox. And, you know, I forgot to check. But that's also um, something that might be kind of fun to do. There's a lot of interesting information about Frank Albaum. Of course, he also had um, recently had a, a kind of embarrassing, um, well, not embarrassing, kind of a, a sad and pathetic and horrifying, uh, I think it was a letter come out that indicated that he also was, um, well, not also, that he, he was uh, not so nice when it came to people of other races, which I find... Um, disappointing but you know it's it's probably not fair to judge people from another era by our standards but um 
I'm certainly one of those people who really likes finding people who were ahead of their time. And, uh, and Twain is one of them. He's, he's uh, often maligned by people who haven't done a whole lot of research on him. He's, he's an interesting and complex character. So I've yammered on enough now. I see I'm passing the 20-minute mark. Uh, I think I should let you hear the next three chapters of Pride and Prejudice, which are lovely and a lot of fun. So today, chapters 56, 57, and 58, and I know that for a fact because I've already imported them, Tom tomorrow, next week, we'll do 59, 60, and 61, and that will be the end of Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen Chapter 56 one morning, about a week after Bingley's engagement with Jane had been formed, as he and the females of the family were sitting together in the dining-room, their attention was suddenly drawn to the window, by the sound of a carriage, and they perceived a chaise and four driving up the lawn. It was too early in the morning for visitors, and besides, the equipage did not answer to that of any of their neighbors. The horses were post, and neither the carriage nor the livery of the servant who preceded it were familiar to them. As it was certain, however, that somebody was coming, Bingley instantly prevailed on Miss Bennet to avoid the confinement of such an intrusion, and walk away with him into the shrubbery. They both set off, and the conjectures of the remaining three continued, though with little satisfaction, till the door was thrown open and their visitor entered. It was Lady Catherine de Bourgh. They were, of course, all intending to be surprised, but their astonishment was beyond their expectation, and on the part of Mrs. Bennet and Kitty, though she was perfectly unknown to them, even inferior to what Elizabeth felt. She entered the room with an air more than usually ungracious, made no other reply to Elizabeth's salutation than a slight inclination of the head, and sat down without saying a word. Elizabeth had mentioned her name to her mother on her ladyship's entrance, though no request of introduction had been made. Mrs. Bennet, all amazement, though flattered by having a guest of such high importance, received her with the utmost politeness. After sitting for a moment in silence, she said very stiffly to Elizabeth, "'I hope you are well, Miss Bennet. That lady, I suppose, is your mother.' Elizabeth replied very concisely that she was. "'And that, I suppose, is one of your sisters.' "'Yes, madam,' said Mrs. Bennet, delighted to speak to a Lady Catherine. "'She is my youngest girl but one. My youngest of all is lately married, and my eldest is somewhere about the grounds, walking with a young man who, I believe, will soon become a part of the family.' "'You have a very small park here.' returned Lady Catherine, after a short silence. "'It is nothing in comparison of Rosings, my lady, I dare say, but I assure you it is much larger than Sir William Lucas's. "'This must be a most inconvenient sitting-room for the evening, in summer. The windows are full west.' Mrs. Bennet assured her that they never sat there after dinner, and then added, "'May I take the liberty of asking your ladyship whether you left Mr. and Mrs. Collins well?' "'Yes, very well. I saw them the night before last.' Elizabeth now expected that she would produce a letter for her from Charlotte, as it seemed the only probable motive for her calling. But no letter appeared, and she was completely puzzled. 
Mrs. Bennet, with great civility, begged her ladyship to take some refreshment, but Lady Catherine very resolutely, and not very politely, declined eating anything, and then, rising up, said to Elizabeth, "'Miss Bennet, there seemed to be a prettyish kind of a little wilderness on one side of your lawn. I should be glad to take a turn in it, if you will favor me with your company.' "'Go, my dear,' cried her mother, "'and show her ladyship about the different walks.' I think she will be pleased with the hermitage. Elizabeth obeyed, and running into her own room for her parasol, attended her noble guest downstairs. As they passed through the hall, Lady Catherine opened the doors into the dining parlor and drawing room, and pronouncing them, after a short survey, to be decent looking rooms, walked on. Her carriage remained at the door, and Elizabeth saw that her waiting woman was in it. They proceeded in silence along the gravel walk that led to the copse. Elizabeth was determined to make no effort for conversation with a woman who was now more than usually insolent and disagreeable. How could I ever think her like her nephew? said she as she looked in her face. As soon as they entered the copse, Lady Catherine began in the following manner You can be at no loss, Miss Bennet, to understand the reason of my journey hither. Your own heart? Your own conscience must tell you why I come. Elizabeth looked with unaffected astonishment. Indeed, you are mistaken, madam. I have not been at all able to account for the honor of seeing you here. Miss Bennet, replied her ladyship in an angry tone, you ought to know that I am not to be trifled with. But however insincere you may choose to be, you shall not find me so. My character has ever been celebrated for its sincerity and frankness. and in a cause of such a moment as this, I shall certainly not depart from it. A report of a most alarming nature reached me two days ago. I was told that not only your sister was on the point of being most advantageously married, but that you, that Miss Elizabeth Bennet, would in all likelihood be soon afterwards united to my nephew, my own nephew, Mr. Darcy. Though I know it must be a scandalous falsehood, Though I would not injure him so much as to suppose the truth of it possible, I instantly resolved on setting off for this place, that I might make my sentiments known to you. If you believed it impossible to be true, said Elizabeth, colouring with astonishment and disdain, I wonder you took the trouble of coming so far. What could your ladyship propose by it? At once to insist upon having such a report universally contradicted. Your coming to Longbourn to see me and my family, said Elizabeth coolly, will be rather a confirmation of it, if indeed such a report is in existence. If! Do you then pretend to be ignorant of it? Has it not been industriously circulated by yourselves? Do you not know that such a report is spread abroad? I never heard that it was, and you can likewise declare that there is no foundation for it. I do not pretend to possess equal frankness with your ladyship. You may ask questions which I shall not choose to answer. This is not to be borne, Miss Bennet. I insist on being satisfied. Has he, has my nephew made you an offer of marriage? Your ladyship has declared it to be impossible. It ought to be so. It must be so. While he retains the use of his reason. But your arts and allurements may, in a moment of infatuation, Have made him forget what he owes to himself and to all his family. You may have drawn him in. If I have, I shall be the last person to confess it. Miss Bennet, do you know who I am? 
I have not been accustomed to such language as this. I am almost the nearest relation he has in the world, and am entitled to know all his dearest concerns. But you are not entitled to know mine, nor will such behavior as this ever induce me to be explicit. Let me be rightly understood. This match to which you have the presumption to aspire can never take place. No, never. Mr. Darcy is engaged to my daughter. Now what have you to say? Only this, that if he is so, you can have no reason to suppose he will make an offer to me. Lady Catherine hesitated for a moment, and then replied, The engagement between them is of a peculiar kind. From their infancy they have been intended for each other. It was the favorite wish of his mother as well as of hers. While in their cradles we planned the union, and now, at the moment when the wishes of both sisters would be accomplished in their marriage, to be prevented by a young woman of inferior birth, of no importance in the world, and wholly unallied to the family. Do you pay no regard to the wishes of his friends, to his tacit engagement with Miss de Bourg? Are you lost to every feeling of propriety and delicacy? Have you not heard me say that from his earliest hours he was destined for his cousin? Yes, I had heard it before. But what is that to me? If there is no other objection to my marrying your nephew, I shall certainly not be kept from it by knowing that his mother and aunt wished him to marry Miss de Bourg. You both did as much as you could in planning the marriage. Its completion depended on others. If Mr. Darcy is neither by honor nor inclination confined to his cousin, why is not he to make another choice? And if I am that choice, why may not I accept him? Because honor, decorum, prudence, nay, interest, forbid it. Yes, Miss Bennet, interest, for do not expect to be noticed by his family or friends, if you willfully act against the inclinations of all. You will be censured, slighted, and despised by everyone connected with him. Your alliance will be a disgrace. Your name will never even be mentioned by any of us. These are heavy misfortunes, replied Elizabeth. But the wife of Mr. Darcy must have such extraordinary sources of happiness necessarily attached to her situation that she could, upon the whole, have no cause to repine. Obstinate, headstrong girl, I am ashamed of you. Is this your gratitude for my attentions to you last spring? Is nothing due to me on that score? Let us sit down. You are to understand, Miss Bennet, that I came here with the determined resolution of carrying my purpose, nor will I be dissuaded from it. I have not been used to submit to any person's whims. I have not been in the habit of brooking disappointment. That will make your ladyship's situation at present more pitiable, but it will have no effect on me. I will not be interrupted. Hear me in silence. My daughter and my nephew are formed for each other. They are descended on the maternal side from the same noble line, and on the father's from respectable, honorable, and ancient, though untitled, families. Their fortune on both sides is splendid. They are destined for each other by the voice of every member of their respective houses. And what is to divide them? The upstart pretensions of a young woman without family connections or fortune? Is this to be endured? But it must not, shall not be. If you were sensible of your own good, you would not wish to quit the sphere in which you have been brought up. In marrying your nephew, I should not consider myself as quitting that sphere. He is a gentleman. I am a gentleman's daughter. So far we are equal. True, you are a gentleman's daughter. But who was your mother? Who are your uncles and aunts? Do not imagine me ignorant of their condition. 
"'Whatever my connections may be,' said Elizabeth, "'if your nephew does not object to them, they can be nothing to you. "'Tell me, once and for all, are you engaged to him?' "'Though Elizabeth would not, for the mere purpose of obliging Lady Catherine, "'have answered this question, she could not but say, after a moment's deliberation, "'I am not.' "'Lady Catherine seemed pleased. "'And will you promise me never to enter into such an engagement?' I will make no promise of the kind. Miss Bennet, I am shocked and astonished. I expected to find a more reasonable young woman. But do not deceive yourself into a belief that I will ever recede. I shall not go away till you have given me the assurance I require. And I certainly never shall give it. I am not to be intimidated into anything so wholly unreasonable. Your ladyship wants Mr. Darcy to marry your daughter." "'but would my giving you the wished-for promise "'make their marriage at all more probable? "'Supposing him to be attached to me, "'would my refusing to accept his hand "'make him wish to bestow it on his cousin? "'Allow me to say, Lady Catherine, "'that the arguments with which you have supported "'this extraordinary application "'have been as frivolous as the application was ill-judged. "'You have widely mistaken my character "'if you think I can be worked on "'by such persuasions as these. "'How far your nephew might approve "'of your interference in his affairs, I cannot tell.' "'but you have certainly no right to concern yourself in mine. "'I must beg, therefore, to be importuned no further on this subject.' "'Not so hasty, if you please. I have by no means done. "'To all the objections I have already urged, I have still another to add. "'I am no stranger to the particulars of your youngest sister's infamous elopement. "'I know it all, that the young man's marrying her was a patched-up business, "'at the expense of your father and uncle's.' "'And is such a girl to be my nephew's sister? "'Is her husband? "'Is the son of his late father's steward to be his brother? "'Heaven and earth, of what are you thinking? "'Are the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted?' "'You can now have nothing further to say,' she resentfully answered. "'You have insulted me in every possible method. "'I must beg to return to the house.' "'And she rose as she spoke. "'Lady Catherine rose also, and they turned back. "'Her ladyship was highly incensed.' "'You have no regard, then, for the honour and credit of my nephew. "'Unfeeling, selfish girl! "'Do you not consider that a connection with you must disgrace him in the eyes of everybody?' "'Lady Catherine, I have nothing further to say. "'You know my sentiments. "'You are then resolved to have him. "'I have said no such thing. "'I am only resolved to act in that manner which will, in my own opinion, "'constitute my happiness, without reference to you or to any person so wholly unconnected with me.' "'It is well. You refuse, then, to oblige me. "'You refuse to obey the claims of duty, honour, and gratitude. "'You are determined to ruin him in the opinion of all his friends, "'and make him the contempt of the world.' "'Neither duty, nor honour, nor gratitude,' replied Elizabeth, "'have any possible claim on me in the present instance. "'No principle of either would be violated by my marriage with Mr. Darcy, "'and with regard to the resentment of his family,' or the indignation of the world, if the former were excited by his marrying me, it would not give me one moment's concern, and the world in general would have too much sense to join in the scorn. And this is your real opinion. This is your final resolve. Very well. I shall now know how to act. Do not imagine, Miss Bennet, that your ambition will ever be gratified. I came to try you. I hoped to find you reasonable. But, depend upon it, I will carry my point." In this manner Lady Catherine talked on, till they were at the door of the carriage, 
when, turning hastily round, she added, "'I take no leave of you, Miss Bennet. I send no compliments to your mother. You deserve no such attention. I am most seriously displeased.' Elizabeth made no answer, and without attempting to persuade her ladyship to return into the house, walked quietly into it herself. She heard the carriage drive away as she proceeded upstairs. Her mother impatiently met her at the door of the dressing-room, to ask why Lady Catherine would not come in again and rest herself. "'She did not choose it,' said her daughter. "'She would go.' "'She is a very fine-looking woman, and her calling here was prodigiously civil, for she only came, I suppose, to tell us the Collinses were well. She is on her road somewhere, I dare say, and so, passing through Meryton, thought she might as well call on you. I suppose she had nothing particular to say to you, Lizzie.' Elizabeth was forced to give in to a little falsehood here, for to acknowledge the substance of their conversation was impossible. End of chapter 56 Every visit through Elizabeth into could not be easily overcome, nor could she, for many hours, learn to think of it less than incessantly. Lady Catherine, it appeared, had actually taken the trouble of this journey from Rosings for the sole purpose of breaking off her supposed engagement with Mr. Darcy. It was a rational scheme, to be sure, but from what the report of their engagement could originate, Elizabeth was at a loss to imagine, till she recollected that his being the intimate friend of Bingley, and her being the sister of Jane, was enough at a time when the expectation of one wedding made everybody eager for another, to supply the idea. She had not herself forgotten to feel that the marriage of her sister must bring them more frequently together, and her neighbors at Lucas Lodge, therefore, for through their communication with the Collinses, the report, she concluded, had reached Lady Catherine, had only set that down as almost certain and immediate, which she had looked forward to as possible at some future time. In revolving Lady Catherine's expressions, however, she could not help feeling some uneasiness as to the possible consequence of her persisting in this interference. From what she had said of her resolution to prevent their marriage, it occurred to Elizabeth that she must meditate an application to her nephew, and how he might take a similar representation of the evils attached to a connection with her, she dared not pronounce. She knew not the exact degree of his affection for his aunt, or his dependence on her judgment, but it was natural to suppose that he thought much higher of her ladyship than she could do, and it was certain that, in enumerating the miseries of a marriage with one, whose immediate connections were so unequal to his own, his aunt would address him on his weakest side. With his notions of dignity, he would probably feel that the arguments, which to Elizabeth had appeared weak and ridiculous, contained much good sense and solid reasoning. If he had been wavering before as to what he should do, which had often seemed likely, the advice and entreaty of so near a relation might settle every doubt, and determine him at once to be as happy as dignity unblemished could make him. In that case he would return no more. Lady Catherine might see him in her way through town, and his engagement to Bingley of coming again to Netherfield must give way. If, therefore, an excuse for not keeping his promise should come to his friend within a few days, she added, I shall know how to understand it. 
I shall then give over every expectation, every wish of his constancy. If he is satisfied with only regretting me, when he might have obtained my affections and hand, I shall soon cease to regret him at all. The surprise of the rest of the family on hearing who their visitor had been was very great, but they obligingly satisfied it with the same kind of supposition which had appeased Mrs. Bennet's curiosity, and Elizabeth was spared from much teasing on the subject. The next morning, as she was going downstairs, she was met by her father, who came out of his library with a letter in his hand. Lizzie, said he, I was going to look for you. Come into my room. She followed him thither, and her curiosity to know what he had to tell her was heightened by the supposition of its being in some manner connected with the letter he held. It suddenly struck her that it might be from Lady Catherine, and she anticipated with dismay all the consequent explanations. She followed her father to the fireplace, and they both sat down. He then said, I have received a letter this morning that has astonished me exceedingly. As it principally concerns yourself, you ought to know its contents. I did not know before that I had two daughters on the brink of matrimony. Let me congratulate you on a very important conquest. The color now rushed into Elizabeth's cheeks in the instantaneous conviction of its being a letter from the nephew instead of the aunt, and she was undetermined whether most to be pleased that he explained himself at all, or offended that his letter was not rather addressed to herself. When her father continued, You look conscious. Young ladies have great penetration in such matters as these, but I think I may defy even your sagacity to discover the name of your admirer. This letter is from Mr. Collins. From Mr. Collins? And what can he have to say? Something very much to the purpose, of course. He begins with congratulations on the approaching nuptials of my eldest daughter. Of which it seems he has been told by some of the good natured gossiping Lucases. I shall not sport with your impatience by reading what he says on that point. What relates to yourself is as follows Having thus offered you the sincere congratulations of Mrs. Collins and myself on this happy event, let me now add a short hint on the subject of another, of which we have been advertised by the same authority. Your daughter Elizabeth, it is presumed, will not long bear the name of Bennet. After her elder sister has resigned it, and the chosen partner of her fate may be reasonably looked up to as one of the most illustrious personages in the land. Can you possibly guess, Lizzie, who is meant by this? This young gentleman is blessed in a peculiar way with everything the heart of mortal can most desire splendid property, noble kindred, and extensive patronage. Yet, in spite of all these temptations, Let me warn my cousin Elizabeth and yourself of what evils you may incur by a precipitate closure with this gentleman's proposals, which, of course, you will be inclined to take immediate advantage of. Have you any idea, Lizzie, who this gentleman is? But now it comes out. My motive for cautioning you is as follows. We have reason to imagine that his aunt, Lady Catherine de Bourg, does not look on the match with a friendly eye. Mr. Darcy, you see, is the man. Now, Lizzie, I think I have surprised you. Could he, or the Lucases, have pitched on any man within the circle of our acquaintance whose name would have given the lie more effectually to what they related? Mr. Darcy, who never looks at any woman but to see a blemish, and who probably never looked at you in his life.
It is admirable. Elizabeth tried to join in her father's pleasantry, but could only force one most reluctant smile. Never had his wit been directed in a manner so little agreeable to her. Are you not diverted? Oh, yes, pray read on. After mentioning the likelihood of this marriage to her ladyship last night, she immediately, with her usual condescension, expressed what she felt on the occasion. When it became apparent that on the score of some family objections on the part of my cousin, she would never give her consent to what she termed so disgraceful a match. I thought it my duty to give the speediest intelligence of this to my cousin, that she and her noble admirer may be aware of what they are about, and not run hastily into a marriage which has not been properly sanctioned. Mr. Collins, moreover, adds, I am truly rejoiced that my cousin Lydia's sad business has been so well hushed up, and am only concerned that their living together before the marriage took place should be so generally known. I must not, however, neglect the duties of my station, or refrain from declaring my amazement at hearing that you received the young couple into your house as soon as they were married. It was an encouragement of vice, and had I been the rector of Longbourn, I should very strenuously have opposed it. You ought certainly to forgive them, as a Christian, but never to admit them in your sight, or allow their names to be mentioned in your hearing. That is his notion of Christian forgiveness. The rest of his letter is only about his dear Charlotte's situation, and his expectation of a young olive branch. But, Lizzie, you look as if you did not enjoy it. You are not going to be missish, I hope, and pretend to be affronted at an idle report. For what do we live but to make sport for our neighbors, and laugh at them in our turn? Oh, cried Elizabeth, I am excessively diverted, but it is so strange. Yes, that is what makes it amusing. Had they fixed on any other man, it would have been nothing. But his perfect indifference, and your pointed dislike, make it so delightfully absurd. Much as I abominate writing, I would not give up Mr. Collins's correspondence for any consideration. Nay, when I read a letter of his, I cannot help giving him the preference even over Wickham, much as I value the impudence and hypocrisy of my son-in-law. And pray, Lizzie, what said Lady Catherine about this report? Did she call to refuse her consent? To this question his daughter replied only with a laugh, and as it had been asked, without the least suspicion, she was not distressed by his repeating it. Elizabeth had never been more at a loss to make her feelings appear what they were not. It was necessary to laugh, when she would rather have cried. Her father had most cruelly mortified her, by what he said of Mr. Darcy's indifference, and she could do nothing but wonder at such a want of penetration, or fear that perhaps, instead of his seeing too little, she might have fancied too much. End of chapter 57 Chapter 58 Instead of receiving any such letter of excuse from his friend, as Elizabeth half expected Mr. Bingley to do, he was able to bring Darcy with him to Longbourn before many days had passed after Lady Catherine's visit. The gentleman arrived early, and before Mrs. Bennet had time to tell him of their having seen his aunt, of which her daughter sat in momentary dread, Bingley, who wanted to be alone with Jane, proposed their all walking out. It was agreed to. Mrs. Bennet was not in the habit of walking. Mary could never spare time, but the remaining five set off together. 
Bingley and Jane, however, soon allowed the others to outstrip them. They lagged behind, while Elizabeth, Kitty, and Darcy were to entertain each other. Very little was said by either. Kitty was too much afraid of him to talk. Elizabeth was secretly forming a desperate resolution, and perhaps he might be doing the same. They walked towards the Lucases, because Kitty wished to call upon Maria, and as Elizabeth saw no occasion for making it a general concern, when Kitty left them she went boldly on with him alone. Now was the moment for her resolution to be executed, and while her courage was high, she immediately said, Mr. Darcy, I am a very selfish creature, and for the sake of giving relief to my own feelings, care not how much I may be wounding yours. I can no longer help thanking you for your unexampled kindness to my poor sister. Ever since I have known it, I have been most anxious to acknowledge to you how gratefully I feel it. Were it known to the rest of the family, I should not have merely my own gratitude to express. I am sorry, exceedingly sorry, replied Darcy, in a tone of surprise and emotion, that you have ever been informed of what may, in a mistaken light, have given you uneasiness. I did not think Mrs. Gardiner was so little to be trusted. You must not blame my aunt. Lydia's thoughtlessness first betrayed to me that you had been concerned in the matter, and, of course, I could not rest till I knew the particulars. Let me thank you again and again, in the name of all my family, for that generous compassion which induced you to take so much trouble, and bear so many mortifications, for the sake of discovering them. If you will thank me, he replied, let it be for yourself alone, that the wish of giving happiness to you might add force to the other inducements which led me on, I shall not attempt to deny. But your family owe me nothing. Much as I respect them, I believe I thought only of you. Elizabeth was too much embarrassed to say a word. After a short pause, her companion added, You are too generous to trifle with me. If your feelings are still what they were last April, tell me so at once. My affections and wishes are unchanged, but one word from you will silence me on this subject for ever. Elizabeth, feeling all the more than common awkwardness and anxiety of his situation, now forced herself to speak, and immediately, though not very fluently, gave him to understand that her sentiments had undergone so material a change since the period to which he alluded as to make her receive with gratitude and pleasure his present assurances. The happiness which this reply produced was such as he had probably never felt before, and he expressed himself on the occasion as sensibly and as warmly as a man violently in love can be supposed to do. Had Elizabeth been able to encounter his eye, she might have seen how well the expression of heartfelt delight diffused over his face became him. But, though she could not look, she could listen, and he told her of feelings, which, in proving of what importance she was to him, made his affection every moment more valuable. They walked on, without knowing in what direction. There was too much to be thought, and felt, and said, for attention to any other objects. She soon learnt that they were indebted for their present good understanding to the efforts of his aunt, who did call on him in her return through London, and there relate her journey to Longbourn, its motive, and the substance of her conversation with Elizabeth, dwelling emphatically on every expression of the latter which, in her ladyship's apprehension, 
peculiarly denoted her perverseness and assurance, in the belief that such a relation must assist her endeavors to obtain that promise from her nephew, which she had refused to give. But unluckily for her ladyship, its effect had been exactly contrary-wise. "'It taught me to hope,' said he, "'as I had scarcely ever allowed myself to hope before. "'I knew enough of your disposition to be certain that, "'had you been absolutely irrevocably decided against me, "'you would have acknowledged it to Lady Catherine, frankly and openly.' "'Elizabeth colored and laughed as she replied, "'Yes, you know enough of my frankness to believe me capable of that.' After abusing you so abominably to your face, I could have no scruple in abusing you to all your relations. What did you say of me that I did not deserve? For, though your accusations were ill-founded, formed on mistaken premises, my behavior to you at the time had merited the severest reproof. It was unpardonable. I cannot think of it without abhorrence. We will not quarrel for the greater share of blame annexed to that evening, said Elizabeth. The conduct of neither, if strictly examined, will be irreproachable. But since then we have both, I hope, improved in civility. I cannot be so easily reconciled to myself. The recollection of what I then said, of my conduct, my manners, my expressions during the whole of it, is now, and has been many months, inexpressibly painful to me. Your reproof, so well applied, I shall never forget. Had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner... Those were your words. You know not, you can scarcely conceive, how they have tortured me, though it was some time, I confess, before I was reasonable enough to allow their justice. I was certainly very far from expecting them to make so strong an impression. I had not the smallest idea of their being ever felt in such a way. I can easily believe it. You thought me then devoid of every proper feeling. I am sure you did. The turn of your countenance I shall never forget, as you said that I could not have addressed you in any possible way that would induce you to accept me. Oh, do not repeat what I then said. These recollections will not do at all. I assure you that I have long been most heartily ashamed of it. Darcy mentioned his letter. Did it? said he. Did it soon make you think better of me? Did you, on reading it, give any credit to its contents? She explained what its effect on her had been, and how gradually all her former prejudices had been removed. I knew, said he, that what I wrote must give you pain, but it was necessary. I hope you have destroyed the letter. There was one part especially, the opening of it, which I should dread your having the power of reading again. I can remember some expressions which might justly make you hate me. The letter shall certainly be burnt, if you believe it essential to the preservation of my regard. But— Though we have both reason to think my opinions not entirely unalterable, they are not, I hope, quite so easily changed as that implies. When I wrote that letter, replied Darcy, I believed myself perfectly calm and cool, but I am since convinced that it was written in a dreadful bitterness of spirit. The letter perhaps began in bitterness, but it did not end so. The adieu is charity itself, but think no more of the letter. The feelings of the person who wrote— and the person who received it, are now so widely different from what they were then, that every unpleasant circumstance attending it ought to be forgotten. You must learn some of my philosophy. Think only of the past, as its remembrance gives you pleasure. I cannot give you credit for any philosophy of the kind. Your retrospections must be so totally void of reproach, 
that the contentment arising from them is not of philosophy, but, what is much better, of innocence. But with me it is not so. Painful recollections will intrude, which cannot, which ought not, to be repelled. I have been a selfish being all my life, in practice, though not in principle. As a child I was taught what was right, but I was not taught to correct my temper. I was given good principles, but left to follow them in pride and conceit. Unfortunately, an only son, for many years an only child, I was spoilt by my parents, who, though good themselves, my father particularly, all that was benevolent and amiable, allowed, encouraged, almost taught me to be selfish and overbearing, to care for none beyond my own family circle, to think meanly of all the rest of the world, to wish at least to think meanly of their sense and worth compared with my own. Such I was from eight to eight and twenty, and such I might still have been, but for you, dearest, loveliest Elizabeth. What do I not owe you? You taught me a lesson, hard indeed at first, but most advantageous. By you I was properly humbled. I came to you without a doubt of my reception. You showed me how insufficient were all my pretensions to please a woman worthy of being pleased. Had you then persuaded yourself that I should— Indeed I had. What will you think of my vanity? I believed you to be wishing, expecting my addresses. My manners must have been in fault, but not intentionally, I assure you. I never meant to deceive you, but my spirits might often lead me wrong. How you must have hated me after that evening! Hate you? I was angry, perhaps, at first, but my anger soon began to take a proper direction." I am almost afraid of asking what you thought of me when we met at Pemberley. You blamed me for coming? No, indeed. I felt nothing but surprise. Your surprise could not be greater than mine in being noticed by you. My conscience told me that I deserved no extraordinary politeness, and I confess that I did not expect to receive more than my due. My object then, replied Darcy, was to show you, by every civility in my power, that I was not so mean as to resent the past, and I hoped to obtain your forgiveness, to lessen your ill opinion, by letting you see that your reproofs had been attended to. How soon any other wishes introduced themselves I can hardly tell, but I believe in about half an hour after I had seen you. He then told her of Georgiana's delight in her acquaintance, and of her disappointment at its sudden interruption, which naturally leading to the cause of that interruption, she soon learned that his resolution of following her from Derbyshire in quest of her sister had been formed before he quitted the inn, and that his gravity and thoughtfulness there had arisen from no other struggles than what such a purpose must comprehend. She expressed her gratitude again, but it was too painful a subject to each to be dwelt on farther. After walking several miles in a leisurely manner, and too busy to know anything about it, they found at last, on examining their watches, that it was time to be at home. What would become of Mr. Bingley and Jane? Was a wonder which introduced the discussion of their affairs. Darcy was delighted with their engagement. His friend had given him the earliest information of it. I must ask whether you were surprised, said Elizabeth. Not at all. When I went away I felt that it would soon happen. That is to say, you had given your permission. I guessed as much and though he exclaimed at the term, she found that it had been pretty much the case. 
On the evening before my going to London, said he, I made a confession to him, which I believe I ought to have made long ago. I told him of all that had occurred to make my former interference in his affairs absurd and impertinent. His surprise was great. He had never had the slightest suspicion. I told him, moreover, that I believed myself mistaken in supposing, as I had done, that your sister was indifferent to him, and as I could easily perceive that his attachment to her was unabated, I felt no doubt of their happiness together. Elizabeth could not help smiling at his easy manner of directing his friend. Did you speak from your own observation, said she, when you told him that my sister loved him, or merely from my information last spring? From the former. I had narrowly observed her during the two visits which I had lately made here, and I was convinced of her affection. And your assurance of it, I suppose, carried immediate conviction to him. It did. Bingley is most unaffectedly modest. His diffidence had prevented his depending on his own judgment in so anxious a case, but his reliance on mine made everything easy. I was obliged to confess one thing, which for a time, and not unjustly, offended him. I could not allow myself to conceal that your sister had been in town three months last winter, that I had known it and purposely kept it from him. He was angry, but his anger, I am persuaded, lasted no longer than he remained in any doubt of your sister's sentiments. He has heartily forgiven me now." Elizabeth longed to observe that Mr. Bingley had been a most delightful friend, so easily guided that his worth was invaluable, but she checked herself. She remembered that he had yet to learn to be laughed at, and it was rather too early to begin. In anticipating the happiness of Bingley, which of course was to be inferior only to his own, he continued the conversation till they reached the house. In the hall they parted. End of chapter 58. Isn't it lovely? Ah, oh, finally. So thank you for tuning in to chapters 56, 57, and 58. Next week we will finish the book with 59, 60, and 61. Thanks for listening. And oh my lord, I can't believe I almost forgot. We have started a gallery of completed projects. Um... Kristen sent me the picture of a gorgeous birch shawl that she's worked on, and she is our um, our inaugural picture person. A fabulous picture of her in Central Park with the statue of William Shakespeare behind her. Um, so I encourage you all, as you finish projects, any projects, not just knitted, crocheted, painted, potted, I, anything you're working on while you listen to this, please send me your picture at mamaonits at gmail.com. And I will post them to our gallery. And I'll just keep doing a little update link to our gallery in, um, in the show notes. So thank you, Kristen. And I hope you all have a wonderful week. Bye-bye. As always, I'd like to thank Annie Coleman for her reading of the book. And thank you to Josh Christian, who did Chasing Hero. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit. C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.